Hi there, this is Christopher Jackson, and welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. Today, we're starting with a slightly different set of dulcet tones as we begin the show, and I take on the host duties. Shortly, we'll be getting straight into a conversation between my co-hosts. As you may know them already, Patrick Malloy from the Breakthrough Energy Department at RMI, Andrew Leadham, General Counsel and Head of Policy for Biotech. Today, the team will be speaking with our guest, the fantastic Kaiser Rutberg Valgreen from H2 Green Steel. It's going to be a really exciting conversation with a fantastic new business, and we hope that you enjoy the show as much as our team enjoyed talking to Kaiser. I'll be joining Andrew and Patrick towards the end of the show for a debrief on their discussion. But before we get into it, as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here on the podcast. And if you have any questions for us, please get in touch by emailing info at h2podcast.com or by finding us on Twitter at About Hydrogen. Right, that's the host admin out of the way. Now time for the show. Great. So, so Kasha, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe how H2 Green Steel came into being? Hi, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast today. So um, my name is Kaisa. I'm Swedish and I'm heading up the green hydrogen and, and iron part of H2 Green Steel. It's a fairly new company, uh, one and a half years old, and it was founded by Vargas. Vargas is um, an impact company builder, you could call it, kind of an investment company. And it's it's quite different because it's it's really focused on the sustainability part and how you basically can challenge old truth and conventional ways of uh, working. They founded uh, some years ago Polarium, which is a battery or storage company that is quite successful now. And uh, they've also founded Northvolt, which is a, a battery cell producer that just released, or right before Christmas, uh, produced the first battery cell from its factory in the north of Sweden. That's our founders. And how the idea came up was actually at the board meeting of Northvolt, uh, where one of the main owners is a, is a large uh, automotive company. And they started to talk about how can you actually not only decarbonize the fueling part, or what do you want to call it about the car, but actually how the car is made. And the most significant part of, of um, that in terms of decarbonization is the steel making part. So they started to talk about that and they realized the technology is ready and the market is also ready for such a product. And then H2 Green Steel was born. So that was the main idea behind the company. So it's, um, it's really a white sheet of paper that we start with or we started with one and a half years ago. And now we are... 100 people and in our Series B financing round. And yeah. So, Kaisa, building off of that, uh, I'm going to change the question order just a little bit. But, uh, you know, in spite of the name H2 Green Steel, obviously there's a broader approach uh, than traditional steel companies. Can you explain a little bit more about what you do and what the sectors are that the company is interested in? Yeah, so so actually, when we talk about the company or in the field where I work, we we say H2GS because our ambition or our purpose is to decarbonize hard to abate industries, and we start with steel. So that's not where we end. We start with steel. What is our core? What is the backbone of our decarbonization journey now in the steel industry is green hydrogen, and it's large scale green hydrogen for direct offtake. So we are no, we are not just another steel company, you could say. We are a green impact company, and we happen to work with steel first in one way. 
So maybe the quick follow on is why start with steel and, and perhaps also why northern Sweden? Mm. No, so why we start with steel, it's um, obviously one would think that ammonia or refineries or something like that would be a more natural first step because they are using a lot of, of hydrogen today. Obviously not green hydrogen, it's grey hydrogen uh, for the majority of it. But what is what is very complicated if you would try to decarbonize the ammonia industry, especially for fertilizer, is that it's a very long value chain. The cost increase you have at kind of at the first step because you would use electrolysis instead of reforming natural gas. And that comes normally, not maybe not now because of natural gas prices, but normally that would come in Europe at a much, much higher cost than the grey one. So you need to take that cost and then you need to push that through the value chain. Um, and as you know, from you, you make green hydrogen, then ammonia, then fertilizer, then you ship it, then you bring it to a distributor and to the farmer. And then there's so many steps before you actually reach us buying the bread in the store. So even though the price increase you need in the store is very little, it's, it's hard to, to push it through. If you compare that to the steel industry and what we are doing, but we are building three platforms. We are building green hydrogen production that is very similar to another Swedish company, Hybrid or SSAB, is then fueling direct reduction to produce green iron that is then going into uh, the steel mill. By doing these three steps in-house, we can actually deliver a green steel product to the market that a BMW or another car maker could actually buy. And then they could introduce a green car to the market and they can take a premium for that. So we can control a fairly big part of the value chain and make sure that we make it profitable. So that's a, a big reason, I would say, for why the steel industry is probably a front runner compared to ammonia, if you take that as an example. That doesn't mean that it's not going to happen in ammonia. I, I am sure it will, but it's, it's more bankable, you could say, in the steel industry. In keeping with the, with the focus on the steel industry, one of the key questions is, of course, around deployment and what are the timelines and what does that look like? And I think you guys are uniquely positioned in that, in that timeline. So could you talk a little bit about what you're looking at and what deployment looks like going forward? I mean, there are different parts of that. It really depends if you hone into what we do in our first project. So our first project as H2 Green Steel and what we launched, uh, I would say, officially about one and a half year ago, and we closed our A round in May last year. That is really in Budan, and that's where we build these three platforms. And right now, in terms of, of that, we are in, you could say, fail-free or detail engineering part, uh, where we're really moving from a bigger concept to understanding where are the nuts and bolts going to be? How are we actually going to install our uh, electrolyzers? How is that going to connect to the pipeline at the side to the next step, etc.? So, and And by doing that, we have our... Uh, thinking around EPCM, there is no one in the world right now who can take on an EPC position for 800 megawatt electrolysis. So that that is something we are doing. And, and basically, in terms of timing, then we are expecting to have our first product going to the customer in 2025. What There are dependencies here, of course, and it is basically where we are right now. We are waiting for the permit. So uh, we did submit our our environmental permit in December last year. 
to the court and the court was super fast. I have to say to get back to us uh, was a permit application of about 1,700 pages or something like that. And uh, over Christmas, basically, they read it and got back to us. So they have done an excellent job. Uh, obviously, we don't have the approval yet, but everything is looking as good as it could, I would say. But it's a huge permit and it's very different from anything that has been done before in Sweden. So when we, if we get the permit for, for the first part, which is kind of a construction permit, we could start to prepare the land at the site. And it's about 200 hectare factory. So it's a huge area that needs to be prepared. And then that will lead then to the first product eventually coming out in 2025. But also, of course, depending on infrastructure for grid and railway and so forth. But then that's our first plan. So basically what we do at the same time is that we create a blueprint of these three platforms. And our global kind of scale-up strategy is to take them, digitize kind of, you could say, the knowledge in, in different type of forms. And then we go globally either with all three of them. But I also will admit we are not into building new steel mills around the world. There are a lot of great steel mills and steel companies out there. So again, back to we are not just another steel company, we're actually driven by green hydrogen. So we could take all three, we could take just green steel and green iron and deliver green iron to a steel mill, or we can just take the green hydrogen part and bring that to locations in the world where it makes sense. So that's another uh, type of deployment. And our first step then outside of Sweden, we announced before Christmas, and that's in the Iberian Peninsula in a project together with Bedrola a large renewable company. And just to add to that, that's a really core part for us in our model. It is about partnerships uh, in the value chain. We don't believe that the transition will happen fast enough if someone is trying to do it all by themselves. You have to show a new level of transparency. You have to be willing to share the profit pool in a way. So you create trust and, and you bring your expertise and your part of the value chain to the table. And that's what we're trying to do with Ibedrola. Fantastic. And Kaisa, if you guys have tips on how to make permitting move faster, for those <laughs> of us working in California, we would be deli- any guidance you have would be greatly appreciated. But that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that it's moving quickly on your end. You did touch earlier, and I'll let Patrick uh, do the uh, the digitalization and, and uh, super interesting question there. But you did touch earlier on the hybrid the hybrid consortium and what they're doing. Could you just explain very briefly sort of what differentiates you guys from what they're doing and uh, and how that complements each other and, and that kind of approach? No, I'm happy to. And in terms of hybrid, first I want to say that hybrid is a super important initiative really for the steel industry. Um, they have been leading the way. I mean, because of what they have proven, we don't really need to build another pilot. We are going large scale right away. And they are a big inspiration for us, I have to say. So we are applying a similar method or technology setup, you could say. It is the green hydrogen feeding into green iron, feeding into a mini-mill concept. So we are we are doing the same from that perspective. But a key difference is Hybrid is a joint initiative between the steelmaker SSAB, uh, the iron ore miner LKAB and Vattenfall, where two out of them are state-owned. Uh, and they have been around, uh, uh, around for many, many, many years. They have a long history and SSAB is really a prominent steel player. Uh, they, they know what they're doing in steel. We at H2Green Steel, we're a startup. 
maybe we could say a startup on steroids in one way, because we are really uh, not a normal startup. We have no legacy uh, in terms of, of uh, knowledge, resources, assets, and this is both for good and for bad, I could say. I mean, we have to search for and find and recruit the best talent that's out there. And that's really what we're doing now. We are recruiting from all over the world to come and work in Buda with that project, but then to move around to other locations globally. It's the same a bit with financing. We didn't. We don't need to compete with financing like internally to keep old assets alive, right? We can go out to the markets, get financing for the greenest, the newest, and the most advanced equipment that is available now. And we should also, for those of you who are not familiar with this um, European steel industry, it hasn't been a new steel mill built since the 70s so obviously by by really introducing the latest technology and and possibility to work with automation and digitalization that's also a big advantage for us um so another thing that i've reflected a bit on is that because my background is from other large industrial companies uh, like yara international and, and sunvik and so forth and because we have um, this new setup, we're a new company, we have very limited hierarchies. They're very short ways for make decisions. So we are very fast, I would say. There are very few old truths. Okay, we're starting to create our own truth now, I have to say, but it's still very little compared to the, the um, older guys. We're agile and we can really move fast. And connected to this, I, I've noticed that many... I was a younger talents are very interested to join us because they early get a big possibility to really bring ideas uh, to feel listened to. And we have a big thing in the company that every individual is equally important and every individual we get on board is super important for us to, to make this happen. And regardless if you are 24 or if you were 65 and regardless of your background and title, you are equally important. So I think that's another thing that tends to, I don't say it's necessarily so inhibited, but it tends to disappear over time when you are becoming a very big company. And finally, I want to say that we are actually not a steel company. That, that's, a, that's, a key, that's a key differentiator. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we need to be super strong in steelmaking as well. And we're going to make sure to make that happen. We are, like I said, recruiting the best uh, there is in the world. And anyone who would like to join us and feel they are the best, please contact us. But our purpose is, like I said, it's, it is to decarbonize hard-to-bait industries. And we start with steel. And for the reasons I, I mentioned before, why that is coming first. But, but in doing so, we are creating this kind of unique knowledge in how to design, build, and operate um, a gigafactory. And there are very few that can do this. And this is something we can use again and again. So we are creating that. So at, at our core, we are an impact company accelerating the transition in hard to bait industries with green hydrogen at our core. So ammonia, aluminum, shipping, cement could come next, right? It's really, it, it's a matter of where we see bankable cases coming up. And that's where we enter. Yeah, and, and Andrew uh, alluded to one of one of one of my questions anyway, which is which is also different. And you know, given the dynamism across sectors, across kind of traditional hard to abate sectors, especially, you know, where does the role for for you know as it's as it's kind of described, digital leadership kind of come in? And 
what is your ambition, I suppose, for that space? One of the first recruitments the company did, and this was before I joined, was to find one of the best, and I would say the best, um, digital guy you can find in, in, in Sweden or maybe in, I don't know the world, but, but he is fantastic. And uh, his background is from Google. He was a CDO at uh, EQT, investment or private equity company before. And he, he has a very unique knowledge in the field of digital. And early on, he started to recruit the best of the best in, in uh, software and, and basically the digital field. And I would say that this is kind of a, a sign of how we operate, because if you, if you, again, compare us to the companies, at least I worked for before, you build something and then you look at, oh, what data do we get and how could we use this, right? We are, before we build something, we are thinking about what kind of data will this generate and how can we use that? How can we make sure that in the hydrogen field, this will help us to be best, have the cost, best cost position in the world? Because green hydrogen is a cost game, right? You have to drive down the cost. So that is uh, uh, really a um, core element, core competence, core, core skill in the company. So if you would look at the number of employees we have and how many of them that are software people, you would, yeah, it looks quite strange if you would compare us to kind of a normal steel company or probably hydrogen company, if you can find one. So that, that is uh, how we use it. And this work, I would say, um, has already resulted in two patent applications. Um, so we have uh, right before Christmas, we submitted our first patent that is most like focused on how to optimize operations. So how to optimize basic your electricity cost without going more into details. But it, it is um, working with a small storage. Uh, storage is very expensive uh, still. So it's one to two hour storage and that can help us to to really optimize the production and how you balance with the grid and grid, grid services. Our second patent was uh, filed for some weeks ago, and that is more focused on kind of the first part of when you design a factory. So based on the data we have, based on all the interaction we've had with different suppliers and technology providers and, and experts in the field, we have created this database, you can say, and, and derived from that, we can model and configure a new factory that is dependent on what kind of off-taker you have. So in, in our first project now with a um, green iron production, we, the, it, it needs 24-7 feed of green hydrogen, which is one of the hardest part to do. So with that, we know how to, to configure for the region where we are, so in the north of Sweden. But obviously, that will be very different if you are in a region with higher intermittency uh, on the electricity side. So the model can also uh, take that into account and then basically bring up a recommendation for what technologies should you use on electrolyzer sites. Uh, so for instance, in Buda, we will use uh, three different technologies on the electrolyzer side. We will have alkaline, we will have solid oxide and PEM or pressurized alkaline. And the reason for that is it depends on, on the circumstances where you have your production, basically. So this is something that the system can do. So it's quite, quite exciting to see how you can use the, the really sharp brains in, in software uh, engineering to basically drive down the cost for hydrogen production. 
So, so maybe, maybe one more final question, but I know you've touched a little bit on the, the kind of the founding group, uh, the consortium that helped help found H2 Green Steel, H2GS, I guess we call it that. <laughs> um, H2 Green also, Solutions, right? There we go. <laughs> See, I was, I was going to ask as well, you know, your Series B, what does the future hold? Is it H2 Green Solutions? <laughs> no, I don't know. It's... Um... The we we talk a lot about H2GS, but obviously the name as of now is H2 Green Steel. Steel is our first project. It is the most important thing we do right now, and we will make sure that we are becoming really, really strong in steel. So I by saying we're not a steel company doesn't mean that we don't take it seriously. But it, it's just that's the first step. But if you look into our A round investors, so uh, like I said, we we closed our first financing round that was pure equity in May last year. And it's a pretty broad group of investors. The round was about 105 million US dollar. So for an A round, that's quite, quite significant. But as you probably understand, to, to build this size of electrolysis, iron and steel it requires quite a lot of capital so that's a huge difference obviously from just starting a software company but so we need a lot of money basically but in that round we had investors like obviously our founders so Vargas another one is Altor both of them more from the financial side Kingspan is another more industrial investor Mercedes-Benz Scania Spotify founder actually Daniel Ek invested in us Exor, which is the Agnelli family, uh, the owner of Fiat Group, Mashk, SMS, part of IKEA, just to mention a few. So it is, uh, we have a very strong support and very, very engaged owners, I would say, that we are meeting and getting advice from quarterly in an advice, advisory board meeting. And uh, we have a lot, we get a lot of support from them and also how to find new customers and open doors, etc. It's a little, it's like I said, back to the difference to the state-owned company. We have some negative sides coming with it, but there's a lot of upsides that is not common, I would say, in the steel industry or in the energy sector, if you compare us to other energy companies or in the iron industry. I think, I think Kaisa, we've robbed even even more of your time than we expected to. So thank you for being very generous with it. And also thank you for, for sharing the, the story for great H2 Green Steel. And I think we can, we can only say that our listeners are going to be very interested to see what happens next. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me. Okay, so guys... People listening to the podcast might think that we've uh, either gotten a little bit lazy doing two Green Steel episodes in a row, or that uh, Green Steel is just clearly so sexy and exciting we couldn't resist having a second run at it. So uh, maybe flip it over to you first, Andrew. Case is obviously a very well-known, passionate speaker. Could you? Uh, what, what was your kind of takeaways? I guess what were the sort of big learnings that you got out of this, or, or maybe even phrased differently, what do you remember most strikingly from this particular interview? Yeah, no, I I think to to your first point, Chris, that part of it is that uh, green steel is such a, uh, as you said, sexy sector of the of the industry. But I think uh, the other point here that stuck with me the most is that the way they're looking, the way that H2 green steel, or as they were, as Kaisa was saying, H2GS are looking at this is steel for them is a first point of entry to using electrolytic hydrogen in, in industrial processes. And they don't say, I would hesitate to say it's the low hanging fruit because of all the incredible challenges and the massive amounts 
of hydrogen required to go and decarbonize uh, steel production. So I wouldn't say it's the low-hanging fruit, but it's their pathway to decarbonizing a set of high-energy industrial manufacturing processes. So I think that differentiates them from hybrid, obviously, as we talked about in the interview. But that's really what struck me about the mission that H2 GS or H2 Green Steel are, are are taking, right? Is that this is step one in a much broader process and a much broader effort at decarbonization and uh, decarbonization in the industrial and manufacturing sector. I think that's really an impressive and uh, expansive goal for a single company to take. And so I think that really stuck with me. What about you, Patrick? Well, I, I think I think I have to have to reflect on that. Uh, I, I don't know whether we go back four or five years, maybe six years ago, and we had um, a grand total of zero uh, green steel companies or capacity, right? So, so it's it's certainly taking off, and eight percent of global emissions are are linked to it. So, it's a very very important sector, but also one that that folks are starting to get excited about. I think to Andrew's point, exactly, you know. A lot of the conversation around the digital digitization and, and kind of data tracking, management and optimization, you know, using using steel as a departure point for for what is going to be, you know, one of the, the really, really important challenging pieces of like scaled deployment of these these technologies, but also just the the kind of evolution and advancement of, of heavy industry. So I think I think you can't help but be excited about the fact that this is not also just a a step forward and and decarbonizing steel, but it's also about how the learnings and how the deployment kind of and performance of that deployment starts to then be applicable or learned applications kind of fit into other sectors. So it's 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 definitely one of the the kind of the kind of more innovative, interesting techniques. And and you know, it's a company with a very, very different history from a lot of the the traditional heavy industry groups, right? You're talking about effectively a startup that's gone after one of the biggest most capital intensive uh, beasts of a sector that's kind of wild i don't know i don't know how many other kind of cases of that we have in the world but but that's what we're playing with now so yeah it's 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 definitely an insight of, of into kind of what future markets may well look like but also you know how how we're going to actually see see you know kind of i, I guess uh, improvements in in how we we transition and how we operate these large-scale zero carbon um, heavy industry heavy industrial uh, kind of uh, platforms and, and facilities so I'm going to I'm going to violate your rule already Chris uh, I'm, going to give, <laughs> I'm going to give I'm going to throw something back at but and Chris I know you weren't able to join us for the interviews but if you want to weigh in on this I, I would welcome that as well but Patrick one of the things that I think we probably is not lost on anybody who's listened to our previous episodes as well is that both of the green steel plays that were that we spoke with are in are based in Sweden, right? So, and, and we talked a bit about geography and how that plays into why companies would be looking at green steel production using hydrogen in a market like Sweden and why it makes sense there. Are there other places in the world where the energy mix and grid grid mix makes sense for this kind of heavy heavy scale industrial production using electrolytic hydrogen what do you guys think about that i suppose if, if the dependent factor you're you're kind of going to kind of look well let me is, let me broaden the, the question maybe not this it doesn't all have to be related to the grid and the the energy mix that for instance sweden has but maybe taking it a little bit bigger are there other places where this sort of approach geographically makes sense uh on a global in a global sense 
Well, I, I, I think the answer is sure, right? Like, um, particularly, obviously, anywhere that has, you know, large scale hydroelectric resources would, would str- have a strong kind of zero carbon potential on the grid, you know, very strong high capacity factors. And then, and then you're creating a kind of a stock flow situation with the hydrogen as a feedstock and reduction. Like, the, there's, there's plenty of places you can do this. I think what's interesting in Sweden and why Sweden has come to the fore here is number one, it has, you know, a very, very substantial, I think it could be up towards kind of 80, 90% of, of kind of Europe's kind of remaining iron ore. But it also had a, and I think we might have mentioned this in, in the, the, the conversation with the, the, the hybrid folks, Sweden mandated decarbonization of these industries. And it's caused folks to actually kind of step up their efforts and engage. And, you know, it's now becoming part of the value proposition for for other industries down the line. People want to be able to to sell the the green steel in you know whatever form people want, whether it be cars or whether it be you know other materials or you know et cetera et cetera. I think there's a little bit of a lesson for everybody here around if you want to to get to that world and you want to get that deployment, you know take take Australia right now, huge iron ore reserves, but it makes very, very little steel. It's about five million metric tons per annum. Australia has, as as we know, huge potential uh, around renewables and huge potential for you know ammonia exports right now is one of the huge conversations over there. Well, what, what about the domestic industry and what happens if that's used domestically to, to make Australia one of the big zero carbon iron or, or sorry, zero carbon um, steel manufacturers in the world? There is potential. And this is an example of what you can do when you, when you lean in and look for the pathways for technology advancements for sure, but also leveraging new business models, understanding your, your potential to, to leverage those kind of learnings I mentioned earlier for for broader industry and to be more broadly applicable than just one specific sector. I don't know, Chris, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 to be honest, I, this kind of taps onto one of the questions that I wanted to ask a little bit. Um, so I'm going to sort of... Sorry, sorry, Chris. Yeah, sorry, buddy. <laughs> I, I'm going to raise the two points that came to mind because I think they're very pertinent to this question. So the two points that come to mind are, firstly, I guess, how uh, transferable is the knowledge that comes from these projects that are being developed by H2 Green Steel and Hybrid? I mean, how easy is it to take what they have been able to achieve in the markets that they are developing these technologies within uh, and these plants within and then take that into other markets? And that is a bit of an open question um, from my side. I'm sure some aspects are relatively transferable and others are not. And then I guess the the other open-ended question it leaves is that in the case of uh, hybrid, but very much the case of H2 Green Steel. Um, these are, you know, H2 Green Steel is a brand new facility, right? It's not talking about refurbishing or retrofitting an existing steel site. And I think there are some quite profound implications from that. And we've talked about that actually on the last hybrid episode. So to your point, Andrew, I guess there are some, some you know, I'm sure there are other markets in the world that have um the sort of availability of very, very low cost renewables and access to rare earths and minerals that would allow for a number of these technologies like hybrid technology to take off or H degree steels technology to take off. The obvious one I'm thinking of is northern Brazil, for example, where you've got fantastic hydro, fantastic wind, and you've also got iron ore and other resources. You know, that's just an obvious one that comes to mind. Australia would be another. But what's probably harder, and it sounds silly to say this, is also things like, you know, actually political stability, guaranteed demand for the product, and a concerted effort and state-backed investment in new technology. 
And those elements are much harder to find. You know, Brazil certainly doesn't have those three elements. Even if you look at a market like Australia, there was a piece in the FT, today is the 9th of May, but there was a piece um, earlier over the weekend saying, you know, Australia really doesn't have a dedicated federal climate strategy that's worth talking about. And so, you know, are they really going to be able to provide that same level of um, political confidence or stability to companies looking at pioneering new technologies that they should go to Australia first and rather than somewhere else. You know, these things are important. So uh, I guess those are the layers that come in. It's not just about where a natural resource is abundant and cheap. It's not just about does the technology transfer across into different uh, geographies. It's also about, you know, that political climate and that investor climate. And I think why Sweden is because it does hit a number of those high notes. And I guess, oh God, I realize it's just on a hydrogen pun. Um, but, you know, I guess it just depends, you know, how many other places in the world you think can and will hit that combination of factors uh, at enough speed in the short period of time we have to achieve decarbonization. That would be my kind of outside of view. And maybe just flip it back to the two of you. When you were talking to Kaiser, did you get a sense of how H2 Green Steel feels the learnings from Sweden could be brought to other markets? Because Spain obviously is another market they're looking at, right? So, so look, uh, just to, to kind of push back maybe a little on the last kind of aspect here as well. You know, steel is manufactured in markets all over the world that, that are certainly um, not perhaps as stable as, as perhaps kind of what the archetype you just described is. I think I think what what's also happening, though, and, and possibly more worth kind of contemplating is that these projects being developed in Sweden mean that this technology is moving forward. It's not an emergent technology in the same degree it was a year or two ago. The fact is that more and more people have experience of deploying DRI systems, whether using natural gas base, right? So, you know, or, or direct hydrogen kind of systems, right? So we're not talking about a t- level of technology uh, where the maturity level is, is very, very low or, you know, you're kind of almost dependent on grant support necessarily. Certainly for for hydrogen direct use, yes, it's it's a, it's a little less mature than probably where the, the natural gas DRI systems are. But also it's 1,850 million metric tons per year that's used. So you need this everywhere. And now where this is, and, and where this kind of filters back into your kind of question about the broader learnings and where they fit in, is that when you're talking about a very, very large scale, large volume global market where, where you're dealing with bulky commodities, there probably are some very, very interesting crossover points and synergies. There are probably some system management synergies. I think, I think the piece here that's most critical is that like we've talked about these systems and they are at such a scale that we've not really ever used them before, right? So we're, we're in the early stages of understanding how you effectively deploy, operate, and use a lot of these, these kind of very, very large uh, volume, you know, hydrogen consumption uh, processes. You know, as you, as you say, we're in early, early deployment, but like commercial scale deployment of, of, you know, hydrogen DRI systems. I think, I think what we're getting to is the point that like, okay, now that we are at that stage, what can we learn? What can we, we, we actually gather in terms of that deployment-based information and actually leverage for pick another sector, right? There's a whole series of just opportunities that has opened up around that. And I think that's, I think that's the important piece here. It's not to say that there will be direct learnings and they fit exactly there. I, I feel like it's it's about the opportunity to actually understand some of the dynamics that come in when you're talking about this scale of resource and facility and how you manage, use that optimally. 
but yeah, I think I think there's some interesting interesting future opportunities, especially you know given the the kind of the focus on these these heavy industries. Andrew, I'm going to just broadly agree with you on that one, Patrick. Keep in mind, I'm just a, I'm going to plead. I'm just a lawyer here, guys. <laughs> I'm along for the ride here on the technical side of things, but. I, what what you guys have laid out, I think, uh, squares pretty broadly with my understanding. But that's about as much as I can add to the conversation here, man. Maybe I could flip it a different way. Um, actually, tapping on one of your questions, you know, H two Green Steel and Hybrid are both electrolysis and specifically wa- water electrolysis based methods of decarbonizing the steel industry. If you are Texas or if you're Calgary or if you are um, Qatar, what do those states with practically limitless, or I say practically limitless, but you know certainly fairly ludicrously extensive natural gas reserves and a very keen interest in carbon capture? you know, look towards, you know, instead, I mean, you know, for them, surely the fact that these technologies exist is good in the sense that they promote the use of hydrogen. But um, I, I don't know, it's, it just seems as though, I mean, there are obviously other steel initiatives, and Patrick, you can speak to those more knowledgeably than I, that, that are looking more at the blue hydrogen approach. And certainly that's the UK attitude is that steel decarbonization is mostly a blue hydrogen play in the UK. But it's just interesting that some of the better known stories and certainly the two guests we've had on are more focused on the green side. And I just maybe put it to you, Patrick, is there a view emerging within industry about which of the two might be a more popular route or whether it will be kind of a, the English expression dual track globally on blue and green hydrogen for steel decarbonization? Was that one going to me or to Patrick? <laughs> so, I mean, Andrew, maybe maybe as a start of a 10, I mean, you know, what you know in the yeah. states at the moment? You're close to the policy side. Is there a policy interest in blue hydrogen for steel? And then to Patrick, absolutely globally, is there a view on which one's going to win out or how this will play out? Well, I think the I think the, the the first answer is absolutely there is. I mean, to be honest with you, off take side of things, right? I mean, from a policy side, there's definitely a huge amount of interest in blue blue, as it were, natural gas. Uh, production path- pathways paired with with carbon capture and utilization. Uh, carbon capture, utilization, and storage technologies are going to be a huge part of that transition in the United States. I think there's just no question about that. That's going to be a core part of the hydrogen hubs program at DOE. And to your point, well, you know, I think there there's value added in, bo- in looking at both pathways. Of course, uh, I think the you know the biggest case that you can make for why blue production pathways are going to play a big role to start with is that they are the pathway that's going to allow for huge volume. You know, Patrick gave some numbers, which I don't recall earlier about what <laughs> what are required for, for steel production worldwide on an annualized basis. Uh, and I think, you know, the pathway for us- utilizing hydrogen in the quantities needed for steel production uh, in the near term, as it were, are going to require transition technologies and and natural gas production with carbon capture is going to be the the easiest and most cost effective way to do that in in the coming years uh while electrolytic production scales up so uh there's existing infrastructure in states like texas that are going to utilize that for uh hydrogen transportation and storage uh it makes sense it's going to be cheaper and it's going to be the way uh, that I think a lot of geographies are going to approach industrial and manufacturing applications for hydrogen to start. There may be, you know, there will be increasing interest in electrolytic pathways 
down the road, but I think there's definitely a role to play in the near term uh, for those pathways. Would you agree with that, Patrick? Not particularly, but but like, I think it's it's a mixed bag. And no, because uh, here, here's here's the thing, right? I, I think it's worth it's worth recognizing that on the policy front, certainly people are going to look at this, but these assets, you know, are fifty years in life. Right, they're not they're not looking for short run kind of relative solutions, and you know bluntly, you know, do they look at blue hydrogen or do they just look at natural gas feedstocks and and do like localized just standard kind of reforming, right? If they if they go go that route, like it's kind of a, an expensive half measure in a way at times, right? And that depends, right? It depends on your relative capture rate. It depends on other things. But you know, the other side of this is the volatility that we've seen in natural gas pricing right now is going to make some people think if you're going to commit yourself to a 50 year pathway, you've got, you've got to have questions right now to the point, you know, it will certainly be part of the DOE work and, and kind of hub engagement here. It just depends, you know, what relative uh, relative ramp and which use cases, right? And and steel is, you know, steel is a very, uh, as I said, it's a long lived industry, right? So they're looking for consistency of of kind of availability. They're looking for, you know, as a commodity, they don't like huge swings in volatility and pricing and feedstocks, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's it's a margin business. So to your point, Andrew, you know, will it play a role? It will. There's, the, you know, the question is where, and the question is, you know, under what conditions. And I think that's the far bigger conversation and question right now is, you know, what has to be true for a blue route to be viable? Same, similar question back the other way, which what has to be true for a green route to be viable? And to kind of, you know, say one over the other in, in, in kind of general, I think is, is, is not quite, quite where it hits. I think, it's, I think it's going to be a far more nuanced and specific conversation, much to the point that we just discussed earlier, which is that, you know, if you have very, very strong renewables bases and you, or you have like very strong hydroelectric resources, maybe that's a much stronger case. Then again, if you have very, very low natural gas pricing, Maybe maybe there's a blue route. Maybe there's a different approach to it. But that's you know, unfortunately, what we come back to again and again is you know, what are the conditions under which you you plan on operating for the you know the next fifty years? And that's where this gets tricky because it's not just about X, Y, or Z in the next few years. It's about long term kind of projectable uh, availability and management of those. So it's it's a just a slightly different market. To your point, Andrew, as well on the scale up, these facilities consume huge, will consume huge, huge volumes of hydrogen. So scale up and ramp up and availability will be a very, very big part of this equation too. So it's just not as clear cut as one versus another, Chris, unfortunately. And, and, and that's likely why the dual stream conversation comes in, but it's just going to be different things in different places at, at different times, depending on what, what goes on and what uh, people's expectation of future pricing are going to be. That's, that's what I really will come into. I think I would agree with all of what Patrick just said. I think what he's mostly pointed out with that answer is that I lack a facility with nuance, but that's fine and fair, I would say. So good point, <laughs> well, Patrick. Wasn't, wasn't, try, wasn't particularly trying to say that, just more the, more the point. <laughs> no, no, I, we, we all got to acknowledge our faults, Patrick. We all have to acknowledge our faults. Nuance, not my strong suit. But no, I think you're, I think you're, I think you're right. I think that is the, the correct way of looking at it. I guess we'll just leave it there. <laughs> well, I mean, look, stunned silence for Chris. He's just like, oh my God, Chris I don't know how to even respond to that. <laughs> Chris well, like, oh shit, Andrew's pissed about the nuance thing. No, well, you know, it's uh, it, it's quite nice to be uh, on the other side. I can see why you enjoy it so much, Andrew. 
I think, um, you know, obviously one of the big themes really of this year has been trying to get more off takers to kind of come on the show and talk a little bit about end uses of hydrogen. You know, we've had H2 Green Steel, we've had Hybrid, we've had um, Tom Brewer from Budweiser on, you know, and there'll be a couple of others as well. We've also got uh, Geopura coming up. So that's all pretty encouraging and exciting. But I just also maybe signpost to our listeners that we've also got some uh, great guests from the uh, the big bad oil and gas world. Cue the uh, the booze in the audience. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, but seriously, it would be really nice to get, I think, perspective from uh, some of the bigger producers, certainly the uh, producers with the larger scale production ambitions onto the show. A little bit of a change from probably our focus on the technology side. And um, for our listeners out there, if you have any other guests you think we're missing, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. Final, final thoughts and reflections, Andrew and Patrick on the wonderful Kaiser and the exciting story that is H2 Green steel or h2 green solutions is that hgs yeah i think that's the that's what they were hinting at knocked it out of the park uh no i think i think look the the conversation with kaisa was incredibly uh i think incredibly interesting um inspiring in their ambition and what they're doing i think you know for a series a to raise over a hundred million dollars if i recall correctly uh from a variety for a wide base of investors um all focused on a on a you know, a serious mission of decarbonization and ESG uh, investments, I think is really impressive. They, uh, I, I look forward to seeing how their story progresses. If this is step one to go into green steel production, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with uh, down the road. Yeah, I couldn't help but agree with that entirely. Aha! And it didn't even, it lacked nuance though, Patrick. But God, God almighty. But I think I said it well, I agree. That was very good of me. Excellent. Well, on, on that, that bombshell. bombshell. Oh, God. <laughs> I feel like we almost play the Top Gear music now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that sounds like, but we should do it. I just knew he was going to sing. I think, I think the listeners have suffered enough. I think that'll actually just be our transition music from now on. <laughs> God almighty, if people start singing this to me at conferences, I'll really lose the plot. I love it. And that does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Kaiser Rittberg Walgren, head of the Hydrogen Business Unit at H2 Green Steel, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.